0: I can be a winning Ryder Cup captain away So it is an exceptionally big deal And it adds a lot to my legacy For the best Ryder Cup build-up reaction And exclusive interviews Go to otbsports.com forward slash golf weekly And become an official friend of the pod now
1: The Sunday Papers On Off The Ball You're very welcome along to the Sunday pay-per-view Willow Callaghan sitting in for Joe on this Ryder Cup Sunday and the Ryder Cup across many of your back pages on this Sunday including the front of the Irish Independence pull-out sports section miracle required and it's a miracle that would have to go beyond the miracle at Medina if Team Europe are to retain the Ryder Cup at the end of play today they will need to win nine of the 12 matches if Potter Carrington side are to bring the trophy back to Europe tempers fray as United States dominate and they've gone with a picture of Rory McIlroy and Paula Carrington as the uh, main picture on the back of the Sunday Independent today after Rory McElroy's endured a very frustrating first couple of days at the competition where he has not gone past the 15th hole uh, losing his three matches so far and having to sit out for the foursomes yesterday also in the top banner uh, the three page uh, piece about Michelle Smith which is written by Paul Kimmage we've been following this along in the pay-per-view over the last three weeks and this part very much focusing on the fallout after Michelle Smith received a four year suspension uh, from the World Swimming Authority. Also devastated Ireland out of the World Cup. Women's coach Griggs to take time to decide future. That's Rory O'Connor's report on the Ireland women's team losing out to Scotland by 20 points to 18 in Parma last evening in the last round of qualifying for the World Cup. And Ireland, because they finished in third position in the pool, will not be going to the Women's World Cup in New Zealand next year. Front page of the Sunday Times pull-out in their sports section. Spot of bother with uh, Bruno Fernandes after missing the penalty very late on in the 94th minute for Manchester United against Aston Villa it was a chance for them to go to the top of the Premier League because Manchester City had beaten Chelsea in the other early kick-off yesterday but United missing out on the chance to go top and Liverpool eventually after their 3 all draw with Brentford one point clear at the top of the Premier League as we stand uh, but there is a lot of fallout about Manchester United, pressure now going back onto Ole Gunnar Solskjaer after they have lost three of their last four fixtures and especially given the money that they splashed and Paul McGrath in the Sunday. World today also saying that he feels it should be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, given the results that they've had. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the headline they've gone for from Paul McGrath's uh, editorial piece in the paper after his two former sides met at Old Trafford yesterday with Aston Villa winning by one goal to nil. Also John Aldridge has been writing about the defensive issues that Liverpool had in that thrilling game against Brentford in the tea time game in the Premier League where Trent Alexander Arnold was exposed uh, down the right back position uh, by Brentford as Brentford snatched a 3-all draw against Liverpool and Pats Beland the Kerry legend has been talking about uh, the managerial appointment which is imminent in the Kingdom uh, with Jack O'Connor returning for a third stint in charge and Pats Beland's take great to see Jack back in the Kingdom that is the back page of the Sunday World on the Mirrors Sport Gift of the Gab focusing on the repeat of last year's Champions League final which was the victory for Manchester City away from home against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge they won 1-0 which has put Man City right back back up into second place in the Premier League and we now have four teams who are on 13 points after the first half dozen fixtures also Hugo Lloris the Tottenham uh, captain has been speaking ahead of that North London derby trip to Arsenal and he admits that their title chances suffered a huge blow with their defeat to Chelsea uh, just before this game so it's back to back London derbies for Tottenham and it's all gone Ron Bruno which is the Bruno Fernandes penalty uh, which went into the Stretford end when he took that penalty Uh, but if you were watching the game uh, yesterday Emiliano Martinez the Aston Villa goalkeeper came out for a little bit of mind games before Bruno stepped up to take the penalty and he was goading Cristiano Ronaldo to take it Ronaldo eventually didn't take the penalty Bruno did and the ball was skied over in that 1-0 defeat Uh, similar to the back page of the Sunday Independent on the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday a miracle needed trying to draw on the miracle at Medina uh, what Europe will have to do if they're going to win Uh, Shane Lowry celebrating winning his first point at the Ryder Cup for Team Europe last night with that clutch put on the 18th to rescue a par Uh, one of the stories we're going to be talking about on the pay-per-view is the Kaepernick effect Uh, now five years on from Colin Kaepernick uh, taking a knee at preseason games at the NFL and paying the penalty fuming Solskjaer Blas-Var as United go down 1-0 to Aston Villa and they've also gone with the sub-headline Pep has got his mojo back statement victory as City boss outwits Chelsea for a milestone win and also ended a period where Thomas Tuchel had been getting the better of Pep Guardiola and the back page of the Sunsport, Nilo Reardon's interview with Damien Delaney talking about Stephen Kenny, no pass for Kenny, Damien Delaney talking about uh, the change in style but the lack of results for the Republic of Ireland football team so far under Stephen Kenny who's going into the last uh, four games of his contract, pens and needles also on the combination of the Manchester United defeat to Aston Villa and also Brooks Koepka who was uh, ranting and raving at the official which made Sergio Garcia spit out his drink uh, while that Conversation was taking place in Wisconsin last night, and they've gone with Usyk beats AJ as their other headline after uh, Anthony Joshua surrendered his world titles. For a look at the newspapers now, delighted to say we're joined by journalists Brendan O'Brien and Moira Trasney Callig. Folks, good afternoon to you. I Um, I guess we kind of get our teeth into probably the most interesting piece of sports writing Brendan of the weekend which is Paul Kimmage's part three and people have been following on in kind of multi-content ways to this story about Michelle Smith Michelle De Bruyne over the last few weeks we had this teased out and we've had part one, two and three in the newspapers a podcast by The Independent uh, which was out in a three-parter over the last week too and now we've got the culminating piece which many people would have probably been looking forward to which looks at the fallout to the suspension that Michelle Smith incurred at the end of the 1990s
0: yeah you're, you're spot on there Will um, how time flies I, I actually remember watching Michelle Smith win one of her medals I was working in a, in a hotel in Douglas in the Isle of Man and I was in a the Super Bowl nightclub I think when she won her first medal and um, huge Irish contingent over there and we all went bananas and it's easy to forget what a big deal it was. Like you know, a lot of people listening won't have memories of, of, of that time. I mean, it was just absolutely enormous. I mean, you put it into the context even of of the Olympics just gone. You know, a single swimmer winning all those medals, and it was a great piece. I think it was I think it was Paul's part two last week where he he. he um, He referenced Gary O'Toole talking about the pre-Olympics production meeting in in RTE. And from an Irish point of view, of course, that was meant to be Sonia's Olympics. And um, Bill O'Hurley and a few of them turned to Gary, who's going to be the swimming analyst. And they said, so, Gary, what what can we expect from from the pool? And he said, oh, four medals minimum, you know, at least two golds and a silver or whatever. And Joe's dropped. Um, And Paul, what Paul has done very well is, is kind of put into context how this literally did sneak up on people, but not everybody. Um, and, and throughout the three weeks and mostly today, the part of the story, I know it's about Michelle Smith, Michelle De Bruin, but the part that really resonated with me was about the Gordons, um, Sean Gordon and Shane Gordon. Sean Go- Shane Gordon was um, a very good underage swimmer at the time, um, in and around Michelle Smith's age, and they were very friendly uh, growing up and her dad sean was the honorary recorder became the honorary recorder so he kept all the notes of who was swimming what times and the records that were being posted and uh, of all the the many great aspects the three weeks that paul has put together i think it's story the gardens that really really stand out because um you know a lot of us will know some of the journalists who stood up and asked the hard questions at the time and continue to ask the, the hard questions when it was very very unpopular to do so i mentioned you know me and the Isle of Man, and there's people, Irish people all over the world, just going bananas about this. But people did stop and ask the hard questions, and they stood up to the waves, waves of criticism and bile. And one story that I certainly didn't know was a story about Sean Gordon and his role as recorder and the misgivings he had about what he was seeing um, coming into his uh, his records. And a lovely story about you know a father and a daughter. Um, you know, and the fact that Paul was able to get brilliant records that Sean Gordon had kept down the years, um, it really does shed an awful lot of light onto the story. Um, it's a real treasure trove. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And a great thing that Paul does, people see the product on the page, but being able to get people into your confidence to, to talk to you, to literally in this case, open up um, the records of, of Sean Gordon from the past that's that's a skill in itself and that takes a lot of time just getting that trust on board and we're left with an absolutely brilliant story and again i say it's michelle smith's story but for me it's the story of the gardens that really stand out in it
1: yeah there's a lovely picture actually in the middle of the spread it goes across four pages as it has over the last couple of weeks and you kind of get the outline and the background on page number one the meat is kind of on page two uh, but again uh, very nicely sub edited along the way with how this has been laid out and you've got a photo of Shane Gordon at the graveside of her father Sean uh, which stretches across the middle two pages and then we've got a wrap and some quotes on uh, page number four uh, Maura Trassa we've got the story kind of set on page one where we're we're talking about uh, Michael Bamberger who came over writing for Sports Illustrated at the time when there were plenty of question marks particularly from US athletes coming out of 1996 and we stress again that Michelle Smith never tested positive in competition and she would very much uh, continue to stress that herself but in the first page of Hedge of Thorns it actually starts in your home city of Galway with a book signing which Bamberger goes along to
2: Yeah, and this article and actually the last few and actually the podcast as well that the Irish Independent have done over the last few weeks, they've really catapulted me back in time. I was very young when Michelle Smith was winning those medals and i remember being allowed to stay up late you know which is a huge deal when you're in primary school to watch you know somebody try and become an olympic champion because obviously the atlanta olympics you were hours behind and you were allowed there was no question you're up at two or three in the morning and there was no rush sending you to bed either it was it was a magical time and um yeah she was when i think about it herself and sonia sullivan probably would have been the first kind of sporting heroes I would have seen and funnily enough even though at that stage where I was barely learning to swim and I was not a very good swimmer despite growing up right next to the sea, Michelle Smith seemed even more attainable than me because I remembered the arguments that she put forward at the time. Now let's not forget. I was only a child and she was saying I'm not supposed to be a good swimmer I'm small and actually they're laid out here in the article here today you know my feet are small my arm span isn't that wide you know I wasn't training properly you know and she just looked like a very to me a very normal Irish girl where Sonia O'Sullivan was like you know 10 foot tall running really really fast and for some reason Michelle Smith was more attainable but I'm at that time, when she was coming to Galway for the book signing, I do remember it being said. I think on the headlines they'd be on radio on the Gaeltos and the days coming up that you know she will be coming to Galway for the book with the book and real excitement that this Olympian was coming. Now I didn't get to go into the book signing, but I just it came to me this morning and I double checked with my sister, and we have a copy of the book at home. And uh, it turned out the teacher my sister had in primary school, he went in and he got a copy of the book. I don't know if it was for every child in the class or every girl in the class, but Michelle Smith signed those books. Personally, for all those children, Skuelge, which nice. was huge for us, you know, because we never really belonged of you know those people on the TV. You know, we were in the west of Ireland, speaking our own language, being laughed at, and that's how it felt. Because don't forget, 1996 in Atlanta, TG had hadn't even come on Tina G a at the time. Of years it away. Begin. I Think
1: of that situation. Yeah, yeah,
2: Tina G opened up on on Halloween night in 1996. So we were, you know, this was the first time that I saw somebody cool. You know, speak Irish and that kind of stuff and that kind of stayed with us and I remember my sister having the book and being so jealous that she had the book and I had to wait till she read the book and she was younger than me she's taking forever to read the book because it was a big person's book and I was like give me the book I want to read the book and um, it just really catapulted me back in time and it's just the way it's written it's just and the podcast as well and i heard Kleena last week and kieran i think kind of having a bit of a chinwag about this and they were working at the time and i think the different kind of perspectives like brendan describing being over overseas watching it and you know and all of a sudden the discussions behind the scenes in rte and i do wonder you know i think we've grown up a lot we've matured a lot as a country i i think probably had this stuff been happening today in 2021 quest rt would have had to ask questions for example it wouldn't have been brushed under the carpet and um and i just remember at the time being really admiring her and being quite hurt for her that these questions were being asked i remember really not liking janet evans <laughs> like, and it just stays with you and that kind of just forgot about it over the years till it came up but then you realize as you become a grown-up how this affected so many people and i think paul kimmage has laid it out so well in these three pieces i think the podcast of the irish independent done really laid that out really well as well and at the end of it all and also even on a human level empathy wise i have i feel for michelle smith you know she she's gone through you can tell the way this has been written she and so many other people have gone through hell because of this saga and um and at the end of it just the tone that paul strikes at the end like you said that beautiful photo of shane sitting with her dad in his grave and his at his grave side and then at the end you know paul you know tries to go to the house and uh, just the last few lines it's really poignant you know um Um, Some towering trees have pushed up outside. It looks like nothing how he remembered it. He pauses for a moment outside the famous gates and decides to drive on. He has travelled from Dublin in search of Michelle Smith. She's not here. And I just think it is such a shame that we've been talking around this for so many weeks. And in fairness, you could say Michelle Smith to Brune brought this on herself by, you know, sending out that message to Liveline over the summer. And all of a sudden people are, I'd love to hear from her. I really, really would. That's my I just from these three three this this trilogy you just feel so much sympathy and empathy for so many people you can tell have been really hurt so many people have been hurt people i wouldn't even thought of i didn't realize until i listened to the podcast how hurt journalists were Mm. because of the the row that happened as well you know and i just i would love to hear from her that's my overriding emotion and you just hope that everybody can find a way to heal
1: Brendan, I think that would be an intriguing interview if it happens, if Michelle De Bruyne decides to have a conversation with the media organisation as opposed to the statement that was handed to Liveline a few weeks back. Because, look, I can understand Michelle's position here, whereby she has been airbrushed from history. When we talk about Irish medals that have been won over the years, 1996 is pretty quickly skipped over. I was mentioning to Timmy McCarthy and to Johnny Ward when we were doing piece one a few weeks ago you're not going to see Michelle Smith in the montages when RT are putting their Olympics piece to air just before the Olympics starts we have a bit of a gap where you see 92 and Michael Cruth is doing his box jump and the next thing it's jump forward to Katie Taylor we tend to very quickly uh, forget about what happened in 96
0: we do and like I I, I can vouch for that as well having been over to the Olympics in Tokyo um, during the summer and Paul actually mentions it in the article where he's driving down as Maura Trassa said down towards where michelle smith lives and he's listening to the radio and there's a mention that mona McSharry has been the first irish woman to qualify for an olympic swimming final in 25 years but there's no mention of michelle smith and i was writing pieces for online and for print where i was mentioning the very same thing and i don't think i mentioned michelle smith um online or in print once when it was over there so it's true it has been airbrushed out of out of um Out of existence when we come to the irish and the olympics um i think it's an open wound that will always be there i don't see michelle de bruin actually coming out and having a one-on-one oprah style with any journalist they'd be i share exactly what you guys said be fantastic for that to happen for this to be out in the open i think you know you can talk about closure and everything but i think this is just a story that will never have closure um and i think the way that that Paul summed up the end of that article again, which Maura Trassa spoke about, I think was was excellent. It's funny, I've spoken to a couple of people or text messaged or, or WhatsApp to a couple of people this morning, and there seems to be a divergence as to how Paul finished it. Some people kind of feel like, ah, I don't like that. I thought it was perfect. Um, you know, he set that up by mentioning the, the brothers Grimm and you know, the, the house being surrounded and overtaken by, by the wild. And I think it's a, a brilliant metaphor for what's happened to Michelle Smith. I think you worked it in very well. I, this is just one of the, these things that will always be there. Um, it will always be an asterisk in people's minds. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, do, do people who... I'm sure some people have changed their minds about this in in the 25 years, one way or another. But I think it was so entrenched at the time, and you will still talk to people who are on one side of the fence or the other in support of of Michelle or whatever. But I don't see it ever. I don't see. I don't see this as a, a, an element where there's going to be closure, either for Michelle or for you know any of us as as you know sports lovers or whatever I think it's something that's always going to be there a ghost in the background a ghost of Olympics past and I think we just have to live with that
1: Yeah because if I can take you to page 12 of the Sunday Independent today and the fallout to many of the discussions around the coverage after 1996 and we've got the Leinster branch issuing a statement to the Irish Independent which is picked up here on January uh, 24th of 1997 so just a few months after after Atlanta and it reads quote following continued attempts to discredit Michelle Smith's achievements in Atlanta we the Leinster branch of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association would like to express our disgust at these groundless and begrudging allegations. The lack of proper internationally recognised facilities in this country means that all of our top swimmers have to travel to meets abroad if they wish to have their times recognised and included on the ranking list. As a result most of the best swims are going unrecognised we've watched Michelle Smith develop over a 16 year period. We're in no doubt that during that time she's laid down the foundation on which she has built her successful Olympic career so there was Maura of very much entrenched positions and possibly very defensive positions on the back of what happened at Atlanta too
2: mm, um the michelle smith story and the george gubany story which of course are in absolutely no way related for fear anybody would think they were and um, the the connection of course is swimming and that is the connection and irish swimming has not come out smelling of roses from the early 90s and their approach to we'd use the word controversy which is not strong enough for one of those stories but you know what i mean when i say by that and um, there was a huge effort to and you can understand maybe the mindset of trying to protect you know minority sport and trying to protect people and try to keep that sport whatever power it had or position it had in Irish life they wanted to make sure they held on to that and didn't fall down the pecking order which is understandable but in hindsight as we know very very wrong people shut down they closed rank and anybody who put their head above the parapet as we can see what happened to Sean Gordon and they were punished they didn't like it they wanted to keep things in-house and sort things out themselves because that bit you laid out um, that you just read out there, uh, Paul Kimmage goes on then to describe, with such little information known about the international media about Irish swimmers it's not surprising that their main criticism of michelle is that she emerged from nowhere and went straight to international stardom and this comes into where sean was speaking sean gordon was dismayed he had been watching michelle swimming since she was eight years old and as an irish recorder had been logging her national record since 1993. by 1995 she had set 43 new standards and had become almost a stranger to him by 1996 he regarded her as a different person his pulse was racing, attempts to discredit, groundless and begrudging, really. And then it goes on about how they'd obviously forgotten about the letter sent to Michelle in July, 95, warning that if the doping control consent form for the national swimming championships isn't received in this office by return, duly completed and signed by you, your entries will be withdrawn from the national championships. And it goes on to describe the numerous warnings from FINA where she failed to make herself available for out of competition testing, I think the previous October. So there was a lot of, you know, no nothing to see here stop picking on us mm. when actually there was re- I'm not saying that there was anything perhaps wrong but there were certainly questions that probably could have been answered and weren't and people like sean took the brunt of that as we saw and shane and the swimming community as a whole
1: yeah I mean there's plenty of other questions to be asked particularly going back to the middle of 1995 and into the last quarter of 95, and also uh, what's been described by Paul Kimmage is the fuzziness of testing location forms which were submitted just three months before the Atlanta games which FINA uh, had been looking into uh, before the games took place now Michelle Smith's argument against this is that she was having to use different facilities ahead of the games and sometimes wasn't in the place where testers were going to check up and that's why there with discrepancies around locations and again I think um, Brendan Paul has dug into quite a bit of the detail here about Michelle Smith's reaction to those claims that were being made against her at the time
0: Yeah absolutely and, and Mara Trassa has, has summed it up well there I mean there's, there's a very small short sentence which sums, sums it up for me it's, it's Michelle talking about her, her own training schedule before Atlanta uh, she's noting that she trains in different pools council pools have drawn timetables especially during summertime. so her times vary according to schedule mileage amount of swimming sessions and sentences i have no set structure so everything we know about anti-doping um control at the moment is about you, you need to know exactly where athletes are they need to be contactable they need to provide um evidence of where they will be in every given time and earlier in the piece we have um, Paul talking, uh, quoting Michelle, where she's she's complaining about this. Not that she has to do it, but that the Chinese swimmers don't, mm. and that the anti-doping authorities need to, you know, have pre pre-admission. Um, they need to get it. Um, they need to kind of apply for permission to get into China to to do their anti-doping there. And she's pointing out that well, this isn't a level playing field. So as Maura Trassa says, again, there was always legitimate questions. And when you have people, somebody like Sean uh, Sean Gordon, who was there, who was keeping track of these things, there were always legitimate questions and there are still legitimate questions. And it goes back to your point again, Will. It would be great to sit down with Michelle Smith, Michelle De Bruin, and have these conversations, but I don't think we ever will. And just again, on... on, on, on you know the reactions at the time and how difficult it is it's it's human nature for us all to kind of slink into the crowd and go along with the wave it's very hard to stand up to that wave that's crashing over your head and again i think it speaks volumes for sean gordon uh there's a very very revealing part to, to the piece today where he has a correspondence going with paul howard who was the, the sports editor of, i think the sports editor of the tribune at the time um it's a first person person piece that sean is doing based on all this Um, And just the pains he took not to be criticising other people in Irish swimming at the time. Just words here, bits of grammar here that he just didn't want to go in. And even the manner in which his official correspondence with these people was so respectful. I mean, he could have been bitter about everything that happened, but at all times he kept his head up, he he acted with dignity. And that's difficult to do, it's difficult to stand up and it's difficult to act with dignity. And again, you see, um, we mentioned the the George Gibney thing earlier, Gary O'Toole was a, a guy who was so central to that. And even Gary would admit, that in 96 when RT didn't broach any of the questions swirling around this on air he admitted himself he was perfectly happy not to do it so you know it just goes to show how difficult it is for anybody to stand up at that time and it, it, it kind of reinforces again how fortunate we are to have the last three weeks that are kind of probing a little bit more and asking these questions yeah
1: it's a really good read Hedge of Thorns uh, Paul Kimmage part 3 of Searching for Michelle Smith which started around a month ago we'll take a break we'll be back with the second part of the paper review after the news The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Welcome back to the Sunday paper review on Off The Ball. Will O'Callaghan sitting in for Joe on this Sunday, joined by Maura trastny and Brendan O'Brien, taking a look at the Sunday page papers. And uh, culture clash among birdies and beer is Tommy Conlon's piece on the Ryder Cup, uh, taking a look at the American supporters who have been bemoaned by many people who have watched the coverage on the TV. But I thought it was quite interesting that he has quoted Shane Ryan from GolfDigest.com, who we had on the show on Tuesday, our previewing the golf club, who says quote by and large this was the least intense least vicious Ryder Cup crowd I've encountered in four trips and at least so far a major improvement on the Barbarians who were at Hazeltine National in 2016 but nonetheless Tommy looks at some of the uh, times so maybe the American fans have stepped over the mark at Whistling Straits over the last couple of days Uh, particularly John Ram who's been Europe's best player so far has been on the receiving end of some of it and he mentions how Ram is getting ready to go to the grandstand at 18 on Friday. One of the fans walks to the front of the grandstand just shouting Ram's name until he gets his attention. Ram looks across the fan shouts, you suck to which Ram quietly replies so do you. And also he's talking about the rendition on the 17th when Tyrrell Hatton is getting ready to put, of Star Stangled Banner which was met with beer and patriotism, Vespers with bourbon and hot dogs which sets the scene of uh, some of the fans who've been watching on at the Ryder Cup. More what have you made of the American fans so far that Tommy Conlon is profiling here from Wisconsin this week
2: oh god there! I have no word except just I wouldn't even use the word boorish because that to me carries some kind of people are intelligent behind it all it's just I don't know what it is they're just everything that is wrong with America and individualism and we're so special and we're so great and I think maybe and again this is a broad stereotype Mm -hmm. so you know there are people you know not everyone falls under this bracket but in my eyes you know American people who go to these events tend to be a specific type of American and they're the kind of American that we've seen and heard a lot of over the last few years with Trumpism with you know debates about abortion and you know vaccine and you know taking stuff like My Body My Choice and, you know, I'm not taking that vaccine and all this kind of stuff. They're just, to me, they just represent, and America's a great place and it's got great people in there, but they just represent the worst of that kind of, you know, USA and just even that shouting, the get in the hole and you suck and... It's just like at least when you have kind of you know boorish boorishism in other sports, like you think of like you know for example the Premier League. At least their chants are funny at times, or they're kind of interesting or entertaining. Whereas these guys are just like you know they're the ones that if you went into a pub and they were sitting at the table next to you, you're like oh god, get me out of here. There's nothing even entertaining about them. Like, and that's the worst thing. Are you, can you trying say to say,
1: Moratrasi, <laughs> you wouldn't want to end up in a pub beside the two guys who are photographed here, who are uh, absolutely not in the cold no. in the cold in Wisconsin. Uh, wearing just an American flag as an apron and carrying uh, cans and bottles of Bud Light.
2: And, And even the reflective sunglasses, they're just, and the hair too long. It's just, it's all so just, I don't have a word except shudder and just glad I'm not next to them. They're really unedifying. And I think maybe they're standing out more this year perhaps because obviously there must be fewer you know european support obviously because of you know flight restrictions in and out of the us and stuff but um just the chance of usa usa there's just something that to me that's changed its meaning over the last few years it doesn't have the same positive connotations that i might have given to it maybe 10 years ago. I suppose that's the way I'm going
1: to put it. Brendan, the way I see it, I don't mind if people celebrate their team and this US team have been remarkable and they're going to win this comfortably against Europe in the singles this evening and they're going to regain the Ryder Cup. I think you chant USA, I think you celebrate the good shots that are being played by the Americans but the thing that killed me watching the covers last night uh, mashed potato coming back multiple times during the coverage get in the bunker when people are putting on the putting green which is obviously they're trying to uh, chant that ironically like the first time maybe mildly funny but when it's happening on every single hole and pretty much every single european shot surely it's much more fun to just celebrate your team rather than trying to wind up the side who are behind
0: yeah absolutely and you know the mashed potato stuff and all that you know, God, I mean, it's it's horrible, it's terrible stuff. But I, I, I intrinsically, I don't mind that. That that doesn't bother me. I think the point about golf is, and there's a lot of pearl clutching with, with golf in terms of rules and regulations, and oh God, you can't say that, you can't do this or whatever. But you know, Martin spoke about you know, at Premier League grounds or at NFL stadiums or whatever. There's a big difference to a, a cacophony of noise and bile coming at you from you know, fifty or, or five thousand spectators when you can't really make out um you know a personalized slight or, or an f word or whatever but when you're i i think it's it's much more unnerving for say john ram in that situation that's somebody who has you know who, who thinks it's acceptable to walk up to this guy's face and and say something like that to him it was similar with sergio garcia i think on the 16th yesterday and somebody called him a choker to his face like that that takes, uh, you know, what sort of a human being thinks that that's acceptable to do that on, you know, we talked about the, the comfort of the crowd in one way in the previous piece we we're doing, you know, most of us would say the comfort of the crowd, you can kind of shout and roar and the boil is coming out, but to go up to the, and do it to somebody's face is just another level beyond. And it's just that coarsening of, of public discourse and political discourse over the last few years. Um, it does seem to have gotten worse. I mean, you look at the, the Tommy's piece in the Sunday Indo today, on the facing page, Dermot Galise is a very good piece, looking back to 9-11 and how the 2001 Ryder couple was postponed because of it and it's just a nice little bit of social history really on people's recollections of where they were and what happened because of it and i was tempted to nearly draw kind of a very direct correlation between it because since 9 11 we've seen the coursing of debate and polarization and trumpism but then you look back and you think of the war on the shore and keogh island and 91, the Battle of Brookline in 99, when things did get overheated. Mm. So we've always had the mashed potato. We've always had the elements of Trumpism before we knew what Trumpism was. But it's that personal level that people think it's acceptable to go up to somebody's face and say, you suck or you're a choker or something like that. That's something that we see on social media, that maybe this this curtain that people think is there in social media, that the curtains come down in real life and it's just bled over into real life. And it's a horrible thing to see. The other stuff, Justin Thomas, you know, slamming a can into the first tee. I'm fine with that. Mashed potato. I'd rather not hear it, but that's okay. It's the personal insults and it's, This idea that it's okay and acceptable to go up to somebody and say stuff like that is, I think, the more troubling side of it.
1: Yeah, slamming Mm -hmm. the can. I think a lot of it didn't go into his mouth as well. It was more of a... He he hardly uh,
0: drank any of it. It was a stone-cold
1: Steve Austin drink of a can, I think.
0: (laughs) It was probably non-alcohol anyway, so we don't know. (laughs) Um, I just find,
2: you know, the contrast, though, Will, the fact that, you know this kind of boorish behavior is being allowed and nobody seems to be really making any kind of effort to stop it whereas at the same time then when you've got european players and maybe we just sound like we're sticking up for our own here i don't know but like you've got european players who might mutter a swear word under their breath and all of a sudden there's this you know very you know apology comes right away you know oh my god that terrible word has been uttered but by the way just watch this terrible behavior that if you saw your own child doing you'd whip them out of there and send them send them into bed without any dinner oh, but, you know allow, you know a Lost,
1: Sky lost the run themselves last night because it was awful right, Shane Lowry makes a very good putt gets a birdie gets Europe ahead in the match that he's playing in he, on the initial putt, the swear wasn't there. He used the F-word in between saying yes a few times uh, to try and rally himself, to try and rally uh, Tyrrell Hatton, his teammate, maybe to try and rally the European team a little bit and somebody in the Sky Sports production booth, when they were coming back from the ads, decided to use the replay which had the F-word in it. And then you had Ewan Murray and the rest of the commentary team falling over themselves about the fact that the F-word was used in a golf competition at 20 to 10 at night. Like, more Carissa, do you really care if an F-bomb is dropped on a subscription channel where you're watching sport at that hour?
2: I don't care if it's dropped at any point at any time because this is what I mean and this is the... This is the issue with this culture that's going on in America at the moment, and I've seen this actually with my own relatives as well, you know, they will say terrible things to your face about vaccinations, about, you know, your really stupid liberal beliefs, and you know, God forbid you might think that everybody should be allowed to have free healthcare, but they will recoil in horror with the F word, and it seems that Sky have taken this and just really made a show of themselves, like, that's that's small beans. We should be much more insulted by seeing players being personally abused by drunken boors. Like, that. if I'm going to be hurt by anything, that bothered me a hell of a lot more at that hour. And, of course, if I was on Sky, they'd be apologising for me now as well.
0: But but this has always been America, guys. You know, you can go back 60, 70 years when the likes of the Rolling Stones were were uh, touring America um, and the, the Keith Richards' autobiography which is fantastic which I was reading re- re- uh, recently and he's talking about the song Let's Spend Some Time Together I think they are on the Ed Sullivan Show and they made him mm. change it to Let's Spend Some Time Together as opposed to Let's Spend The Night Together so this dichotomy between America has always been there you know, Richards put, puts it really well the liberal coasts you go five miles inland and you can be in Hickville and that's always there I mean, that's just America and it, that always will be and um, in terms of the the, the apologies i mean that's down to ofcom in the uk they have to they have to actually um apologize or they could be you know brought to book by the the regulators it's idiotic but then you could have somebody using like what about the young maura who were let up in primary school last night and their poor ears <laughs> are being poisoned by this stuff trust me the young to... maura
2: heard a lot worse at
0: home <laughs> exactly exactly but like i'm Look, it's, it's ridiculous. We all know it's ridiculous. And look, it's not making the viewing any easier. I mean, if, if Europe are winning, we might be able to put up it a little bit better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Brendan, you mentioned as well uh, the piece that's across the way because we're going back now to odd-numbered years for the Ryder Cup again. That changed because of uh, 2001 being pushed back. And I love the photo that they've picked for the piece by Dermot Kalis as well because you actually have the match sheet for the European team and the American team and you've got Sam Torrance who was standing there after he announced his wildcard picks. Like This was a Ryder Cup that was just set to go uh, before the tragic events of 9-11.
0: Yeah, the picture is dated September 2nd, so what's that, nine days before 9-11, mm-hmm. um, and it was meant to happen on the 28th to the 30th of September, so it puts into perspective the way the world was at the time, doesn't it? I mean, there was all the talk about, I think the, the NFL was suspended the first week, but I think they went back the next week, I might, I might be wrong in that, but there was all that debate about American sports, when is it appropriate to go back, how much public mourning should there be, how do we mark this? Uh, and I'm sure we've all seen some sort of 9-11 documentaries since then, brilliant brilliant one on Netflix, which I just finished watching, and, you know, the, the knock-on effects of that on, you know, the States and the world in general. But this is, like I said earlier, it's just a nice little piece of social sporting history and where people were. And it's written by Dermot Galise, who I'm convinced his his contacts book must be the size of an encyclopedia Britannica. The man is just, he knows everybody in golf. And there's some great little uh just tidbits about you know where people were and he talks about ken schofield the then executive director of the european tour who was flying over to st louis i think that very day and it was mid-flight when when 9 11 happened apparently and um they had no idea where the plane was going but they ended up landing in the canadian airport of Moncton, new brunswick which is the next stopping off point after newfoundland and there's these images of them being you know put up by the by the locals and i have this image of like something out of um, a perfect storm some i know it's not a fishing village or whatever but mm. you know some kind of hicksville in a good way place that you know the the executive of the european tour playing five-a-side football games with german passengers in the car park and getting home cooked ham up to him i mean it's stuff again it's it's sides of 911 that you know it branched out in every way it affected everybody in ways big and small and um it's just a really really well written piece about Oh, the discussions they had, how it'll happen, will it happen, can it not happen? And, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that Sam Torren's picture as well, Will. It's like one of those um, famous pictures of, you know, so-and-so wins the World Championship and it turns out to be the wrong team because... Somebody made a 4 quarter comeback, but it's just a lovely piece. Mm. Again, well well delivered by Dermot.
1: Yeah, it's um it's a very strange time you look back in it because with the 20th anniversary, I was watching back some of the TV coverage more atrocity that has found its way onto YouTube in recent years that happened in the aftermath of 2001, and even things like the Daily Show with John Stewart, which is based in New York, they didn't really know what to do the next day after the um, two towers had been taken down because there was parts of them going like, should we run a comedy show? Should we try? entertain the nation and provide something that's a slight distraction I having sported those conversations in the immediate aftermath after 9-11 or whether it feels, felt entirely incorrect to actually go on with normal life without giving America a bit of time to mourn it was a very kind of strange period for America in the aftermath
2: yeah it was it was probably a strange period for the world and you know this is where our own kind of perspectives on life and the world probably comes into view because this obviously and rightfully so we've got a lot of airtime. you know lots and lots of people were killed and it was a terrible event that changed the course of world history forever as we know and we just saw the american troops pulling out of afghanistan just a few short weeks ago but i often think you know how many other tragedies have happened that we didn't talk about that we didn't digress and you know like i suppose human nature is you talk about what you care about and I suppose, you know, the Irish connection with America, we all cared. We all knew people that we were worried about that day. Where were they? Are they at home? you know and, and the ripple effect that that had and then you can understand like who trains for that situation even the police and the fire the fire crews that went to the twin towers they hadn't trained for that kind of scenario you know so when you think about it, how was the today show or the daily show supposed to have any kind of idea or the Ryder Cup in 01 to have any kind of plan B plan C what do we do in this kind of scenario unlike when you think about the other big kind of world event like the royals they have scenarios for when people die except of course when Princess Diana was tragically killed so young you know so there's so there there are massive world events where you have no training for and you react and the thing is sometimes your finger might be on the pulse and you might react in the right way and other times it might not be so you know that would have been a big decision trying to decide you know well like you know if something terrible happens do we go on with the comedy show do we do we scrap it all together do we send out a rerun do we go back to the drawing board you know that was something possibly you no know, one that gave everyone a thinking of you know you genuinely do not know what's going to happen next in this world and i think that possibly has a profound effect on us personally you know because you suddenly realize you know what your normal is can be whipped away away from you in you know in the blink of an eye but unfortunately for us there are millions of people around the world who are actually still living that life right now and i still think even 20 years on there's a lot of us who haven't copped onto that
1: Brendan, we've been covering the Irish women's team this week remotely when it comes to press conferences and so on. and watching on from afar um, what happened in Parma last evening where Scotland got themselves a try with 50 seconds to go in the game which was converted. They win by 20 points to 18 and Ireland go from a repugnate position in a stroke of that kick to then not being going to the Women's World Cup in New Zealand next year. I would think that a lot of the fallout and analysis is probably going to come in the Monday papers. There's not a huge amount of writing outside of the reaction piece from Adam Griggs' press conference, and also the match reports from the game uh, where Ireland lost out uh, to Scotland yesterday, um, we probably have to wait a bit, Brendan, for the fallout and the recriminations, and maybe question marks around the IRFU, around what's happened in this World Cup cycle until midweek, probably.
0: Absolutely, and into next weekend as well. Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there. With 50 seconds to go, Ireland were going to the World Cup, so there was nobody thinking along these terms at all. Not ideal, you know, after losing the opener to Spain that. You know given where we were in the mid of the midpoint of the last decade you know world cup semi-finalists two six nations titles that they were kind of sneaking into the repishage um tournament to get to new zealand in 2022 but 50 seconds to go everything was hunky-dory you know ireland were going to get that last chance they probably would have got there in that repishage it would have been a weaker tournament i'm guessing so think as well obviously of the um the kickoff time I think it was five o'clock yesterday. You're looking at Sunday paper deadlines. You've Leinster on with a locked and loaded Leinster team. Johnny Sexton. You've got Simon Zeebo back from Munster. Uh, a Ryder Cup, which we've just discussed, which is going to be finishing late, and a full round of Premier League. So, um, given all that timing, the logistics, you know, newspapers don't have the the staff that they once did. Um, it just wasn't possible to do any um, in-depth analysis of it. Um, it did get quite a lot of coverage. I mean, the front page of the sport in the Cindo mm. has a picture of the Ryder Cup, but the main actual written piece is by Rory O'Connor, who's the Daily Indo's main rugby writer, who was on a devastated Ireland out of the World Cup. Um, and Rory's piece inside is more about what the players and management might have got wrong. So it will, it will come out down the line and it, it needs to be done because, um, you know, things have just fallen to pieces in terms of the Irish women's national team. They shouldn't be where they are. You know we should not be qualifying we should not not be qualifying for a World Cup Um, you know people can talk about resources that's certainly an issue but but there are enough resources going in for them to be there so questions need to be asked and in terms of the strategy that the IRFU put forward for between now and uh or the last couple of years and up to 2023 one of them was a the sixth place finish in, in the world cup and which was meant to be 2021 you know a six nations title they're they're islands away from that you know i've spoken before i think it was on the show about um you know one of the contracts for the senior central contracts for the men um that's been given out would nearly cover all the, the the senior women to go semi-pro Now i'm not arguing you take one away but that's a context of of where the game could be at it could, could bring them up to levels where england are at so hell of a lot of questions and yeah it's just the nature of when it happened the lateness of how it happened and logistics in in sports departments that it, it's not happening in today's today's papers
2: i'm going to disagree with you slightly there brendan because i'm just thinking you've laid out the case as to why there hasn't been more kind of soul searching and post-mortems and i agree with a lot of them you're right you know newspaper industry as we know you don't have we don't have the staff we used to and all that and the timing and all the other events but Let's cast our minds back to a few weeks ago when Kerry were playing Tyrone in the All-Ireland semi-final. And with 50 seconds to go, you could say, Kerry might have been going into the All-Ireland final. Tyrone got there. We had God knows how many think pieces in all the papers the following day about, you know, this and that and woe is Kerry and wonderful Tyrone and who's going to win the final straight away. People are looking forward to, you know, the final between Mayo and Tyrone. We didn't know who the matchups were earlier that afternoon. So it's it's a case of prioritizing newsrooms and things like that. And I just I know Zebo was, you know, in action for Munster, and like you mentioned, Leinster as well with Johnny Sexton. But to me, a national team always trumps a provincial team. That's my long and short of it, especially when there's been so much controversy about this women's national team and the mess. And the cock-ups that they've made for when you think about like in, i think it was seven years ago the irish women were in the world cup semi-final six years ago they'd won the six nations and like you said now they're not within a nasa's law of that if that was the men's team not only would the papers be full of it people be talking about it on the streets it would be discussion on lifeline people be asking what is going on and unfortunately, unless the media really does a good job of hammering this home, a bit like how Gavin Comiskey explained it last week when he was saying, you know, this will keep happening because the pressure is not being kept on the IRFU. And it's a travesty. And actually, the male players themselves, they deserve to be in the firing line. I noticed last night, Sean O'Brien was the lone voice out there saying that this was not good enough and what has been happening to that women's team is not good enough and how they've been treated. He's the only one. There are so many other men out there who could also be sticking their heads up over the parapet where some of them have only spoken when they've been asked and they say you know, things like, oh, as the the father of a daughter. You shouldn't need to be the father of a daughter to care that a national team gets fair play and they're not getting it. And I don't think they got it from the media this weekend either.
0: I think you could argue as well. Go on, Brian. Sorry, well, I I take your point on that, but resources are resources. it's, It's not the media's fault that there was... URC on that there was Ryder Cup on no I know I,
2: all that but the prioritizing of it you know that's what I'm yeah saying. but
0: if you if you prioritize that more I say I'm thinking if I'm a Sunday newspaper sports editor am I going to say we're not going to cover Simon Zebo's return to Irish rugby or Johnny Sexton starting for for Leinster because we're going to put two on the Irish women's team it's just not going to happen it can't if that happens there will be uproar as well and we couldn't
2: so. get a freelancer in though no?
0: You could, there's also a space issue in this as well. I mean, there we go. So fine, there's a lovely
2: big, and don't get me wrong, I love Shane Lowry. There's a beautiful photo of him on the front page there. There's space for a few extra words there. And the I just use that as an example, you know? Yeah,
0: I, th- I think we're splitting hairs a little bit here. I, there's no doubt about it that women's sport needs to get even more coverage. It's made huge strides, and it needs to keep making those strides. But I think calling out the newspapers say, given everything that's on, I, I think it's the wrong target, personally
2: i'm not saying it's a target i'm saying it's a discussion and what i'm saying is that when the story is that big there should have been space found for some more postmortems that's what i'm saying
0: okay i would respectfully disagree given given the logistics <laughs> and the timing of it as I say with 50 seconds to go this isn't a conversation everything is hunky-dory in the garden there's no way of knowing people were expecting Ireland to beat scotland they would beaten them 14 times out of 15 everybody's looking at it they're over the, the, the spanish game was terrible but how did they lose it they come back brilliantly they beat italy everything's going to be all right here fine if you're expecting ireland to lose then there's a different question that could be asked in an editorial meeting look is this going to happen this is going to be bigger than we think it is nobody saw it coming
1: is that part of the issue that with this Irish team as well, Brendan? Because we are going to have like a much wider conversation and Fiona Hayes is going to be on the show in an hour's time and we'll talk about the failings and you mentioned the five-year targets 2018 to 2023. On the women's side of the game, they've been missed across the board. Qualifying for the World Cup in 2021, getting to the top six, uh, being in the top three of the Six Nations and winning a title in that period, qualification for the Olympics in 2020, getting to the Rugby World Cup in 2020 in the Sevens, winning two Sevens World Series tournaments, top six finish in the Sevens World Series and a top two finish in the Rugby Europe under 18 sevens. Like they've been missed across the board. And the intriguing thing is that it's so heavily weighted towards the sevens programme as opposed to the 15s, which is a conversation in and of itself, um, particularly around contracts which have been given out over the last five years. But the expectation, Brendan, would have been even with the resources being slashed down, even with everything that's gone wrong since the last World Cup back in 2017 they would still have been expected to qualify against Spain Italy and Scotland and the truth of it is that the performances weren't up to scratch over the three games
0: Absolutely and, and the players and the management will surely hold their hands up in that as well they weren't good enough those basic errors throughout the, uh, the qualifying tournament I mean this is you know we love in the media to have a simple answer to, to everything we love it in life what's the answer here don't give me a you know, um, a convoluted answer as to what's going wrong. I want something to hang a peg on here and say that's the issue. This is a system's meltdown at all levels. The players haven't been good enough. The management hasn't been good enough. The IRFU hasn't been good enough. I remember that 2014 um, World Cup being sent out to cover the semi-final against England and sitting in a outside a cafe in Paris thinking this is brilliant. Here's another Irish rugby team coming through that's going to be giving us great things for a year to come. The IRFU have let this ball slip disastrously and they will come back this week and they will talk about this resource has been put into it and this pl- plan and this program but the the, the 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 proof is in the pudding i mean i covered the the 2017 world cup which was in belfield and then in in um in in belfast and it was just disastrous i mean they knew this was coming down the line yeah there was a, a brilliant team back then in the mids mid part of the last uh, decade that was coming to an end and had to be replaced you could argue there was going to be a little bit of dip at the time but you could see that coming you could see the 2017 world cup coming and you've mentioned the sevens as well i mean this was a debate in the men's game as well why are we giving these resources to that sevens was never in ireland the rfu talked about how this is great for go- uh, growing the game but the player pool in ireland being so small when you're trying to kind of jump between two stools as we've seen some of the players in the women's team doing now is that feasible so there's a whole barrel load of questions going forward and we've a new ceo coming into the irfu after after um the new, the new leader, year yeah. philip, philip brown is stepping down and i think david new sephora's contract is is up as well so the good thing is you could argue you know there's no better time for cultural change and that's what we need with women's rugby is cultural change there's no better time to instill that when you have new people in at the top, and it has to change. This is the perfect, perfect opportunity. If this isn't the lowest they can go, if this doesn't prompt, that change well then we're, we're going to be stuck with what we have for the next decade and more
1: well Mora Trassa, when it comes to the discourse they're not entirely connected because the Irish players were away at camp while the interprovincials were happening but what happened with the interpros at Energia Park and around the edges of Energia Park a couple of weeks ago and now the women's national team underperforming after being in camp for a long time going to Italy underperforming at this competition not going to a World Cup there's going to be huge pressure in the RFU to have a look systematically at what's happening with women's rugby in this country now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, like the structures just aren't there to develop players. Um, I mean, there's, and I mean this in the best possible way, there is something wrong. Now, I suppose Lindsay Pete is unique. She is an amazing, exceptional athlete who can turn her hand at any sport. But uh, you know you shouldn't be. It should you know you shouldn't be able to just you know stop playing Gaelic football and start playing rugby after being good at basketball and make your way into the national team right away. She should have had to fight. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's in the best possible way. The likes of Lindsay P should have had to really fight to get onto that team and not be the star of it like she was yesterday. She pulled them out of danger a few times, and I mean this by showing utmost respect to Lindsay and the athlete that she is and I'm thinking Ethan McDermott, another person who went from basketball to rugby and got herself in there very very quickly, it shouldn't be that easy you know what i mean and part of that reason is due to the lack of structure that is developing girls and women into rugby players it's not there and we got away with it up to a certain point and now we're at the point where we're trying to compete with the england's and the Frances who have their structures who have their money and talent alone is not going to cut it anymore you're going to need to have the hard work you're going to, need to have the coaches and you're going to have to have those structures and competitions to help people progress and develop and they're not there
1: We'll be joined by Fiona Hayes to have a look at the situation around about half past three. We're going to take a very short break. Plenty still to look at in the Sunday Papers, including Mayo against the media and Mayo against social media. Uh, We'll be talking about Bernard Jackman's piece on Connacht, his former province, when we come back after the break too. Plenty still to look forward to. We'll be back with the Sunday Paper Review in a moment. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're very welcome back. The latest in the Premier League, St Mary's Stadium, 34 minutes gone. It is Southampton nil, Wolves nil. We will have live coverage with Kenny Cunningham and Nathan Murphy from the North London Derby, Arsenal against Spurs and the Emirates at half past four. We are looking at the Sunday papers with More Traston and Callaghan with Brendan O'Brien. And Connacht's issues are Ireland's issues is the opinion piece from Bernard Jackman, the former Leinster Connacht and Ireland hooker. Western province are used to being the poor relations, he writes, but any weakness is affecting the game as a whole. He has called uh, for funding of Connacht to get them up to the uh, same standard as Ulster, Leinster and Munster and to be a genuinely competitive team in the Champions Cup, which he feels would then benefit Irish rugby along the way. If you look at the Connacht squad, so many are players who are at academies elsewhere, particularly the Leinster Academy in recent years, and have then found themselves going west uh, when their dream has to maybe been fulfilled in Leinster. And he says, unless Munster and Leinster are making mistakes, it is going to be very hard to improve these players enough so a lot of players uh, coming through at the bigger more funded provinces and Connacht are having to pick up the scraps along the way at a time Brendan when the RFE were going to be a bit strapped financially and over the last couple of years they've mentioned how difficult they are with finances it's still a compelling enough marg- argument made by Bernard Jackman who charts his own time going over to the sports ground too to maybe give some more frontline players to Connacht to actually bring up the standard of the province under Andy Friend
0: yeah it's an interesting article and it's an interesting time for it given you know we're we're all our eyes are all on the southern <coughs> south african franchises who've come in and what's this going to do for the league and of course one of the knock on effects is it's going to make it harder for the likes of a connacht and all the irish provinces and um, other teams to actually qualify for the champions cup and that's obviously got enormous knock on uh, effects for for any province Um, in terms of what you can sell to your sponsors, to, you know, prospective supporters, everything else. And what's really good about uh, Bernard, you mentioned that he's a former player, Will, is he knows what it was like back in the day and he knows what it's like now. And I think one of the really interesting pieces or parts of the piece was he was talking about how he was writing this on the same Red Eye Budget airline flight as the Connacht players the day after they played Cardiff and lost 32-21 on Friday night. And just to put it into perspective, these are just some of the things that maybe the casual you know, rugby fan or sports fan wouldn't know about Connacht their Their travel is more difficult than pretty much any of the other European teams because of where they're based. Um, so he's talking about they would have played the night before. Some of the players are lying on the ground in, in, the, in the airport trying to get some rest. Probably got to bed at midnight, up at 5 a.m. They land in Dublin, bus to Galway, arrive home at lunchtime. So they're still kind of getting that travel and all that you know excess movement out of their legs on a Monday. So they're always behind the black ball. And as a metaphor for Conrad itself, I think it's, it sets it up pretty good and look we're going back 20 years or whatever it was when connacht's very existence was under threat when Connacht fans of connacht rugby made that memorable march on the irfu offices in dublin Um, and basically what bernard's just asking is that they get a little bit more help um to bring them up to standard and you can see his argument you know weakening connacht is is weakening everybody the irfu again you said it yourself in the intro there the irfu given what we've gone through in the last 20 months, whether it's Connacht rugby, women's rugby, club rugby, they're going to be able to turn around to people and hold their hands out or hold their pockets out and say, guys, there just isn't money for this. We've laid people off. We've cut down on on staff in other ways. We have cut the budgets of the provinces by 10%. It's a very, very difficult time. And at a time, like I say, with the South Africans coming in, that Connacht needed more than ever. I don't see how this one's going to be rectified.
1: Yeah, I'm more Connacht enjoy the fact that they have to battle against the tide somewhat and their success in 2016 at Murrayfield was maybe all the more special because they had beaten Leinster who were the powerhouse in Irish rugby at the time but Bernard makes a fair point, it's you've got Ulster who are able to bring in Dwayne Vermeulen who's not going to have a whole lot of value beyond this uh, short term contract which he's come in on and he's going to be well paid coming in as a World Cup winner uh, similarly the likes of Sneeman coming in De Alande, uh, finding their way at Munster as World Cup winners too that as Connacht at the moment look to try and get some cover on the loose head for Dennis Buckley they're probably going to have to look in the bargain bin they've been loaning players from other provinces along the way it doesn't feel like an equal playing field compared to the resources that are being diverted towards the other provinces
2: no it never has and unless things change drastically never will connect i suppose i would say this has always felt like the poor relation you're going to the sports ground out of you know duty nearly rather than expecting anything decent to come out of it except for obviously the last few years and they've had a bit of resurgence but all because you know to be fair to connect they put a lot of planning into it and they don't have very many resources and what they have they seem to do a pretty good job of managing it and i think Bernard lays it out here really well, and he's been such a great addition to the Sindow team. You know, it's great to have him there writing. I I just love the way he's able to paint these pictures for people who might not know this is going on in the background. Mm -hmm. And he makes a very good argument, you know, about saying all four provinces, they have to reduce their budgets across the board due to COVID by 10%. And he was making the argument here that taking 10% off Connacht, when they already have so little, is going to hurt them so much more than maybe, say, taking it off Leinster, who will have other ways to make up that shortfall, or will have more opportunity to make them up. And he's laid out very well those little percent two percent differences and that story that he tells about Connacht uh, coming off the flight that's you know really a metaphor for life in the west of ireland as a whole you know you're you always have to work that little bit harder things are always a little bit more difficult and sometimes you might prevail but when you do it is by accident rather than design so he's he's explained it really really well and might be afraid of you know to steal another metaphor you know a few years ago Connacht football in, in GAA terms say 20 years ago was in a much different place to where it is now and my worry would be that unless something is done to help prop up Connacht or at least assist them to give them that quick just that little push to get them gather their own moss that they could also be left behind in rugby terms and he lays out really well if they do it's going to affect the Champions Cup and it's going to affect the Irish team
1: you've picked out as well a very interesting profile interview Gordon Manning has done today I met Brendan Martin for the first time 8 years ago when Offaly got to a junior final and I was doing a local radio preview and he turned up with what he called his cup, the senior cup which was named in his honour, very unusual to have a living person with their cup at the same time and we're talking about a real pioneer around ladies football and a cup which he provided pretty much when ladies football got up and running in the early 70s
2: yeah, and I, I'd urge anyone if they haven't gone to the shop yet today, if they're heading out and they want to buy a paper to read something they know nothing about, this is the paper to buy. Get this on today. This article by uh, by Gordon is amazing. It's so well written. And he lays out how, you know, uh, Brendan Martin was coaching women bit by bit. You know, he was, work, he was working in Dublin. They were coming to the Phoenix Park and then he realised this was happening all over the country. You know, little groups, drips and drabs. And he thinks that they had their first All-Ireland final on the August Bank holiday of 1973. Where you would be glad to hear will awfully beat Kerry what some believe was the first inter-county ladies football game and uh, Brendan was there he was on the awfully sideline and mm-hmm. his brother Sylvester was the referee and it was a growing movement and suddenly they realised we don't have a cup and he he said he had some money in his pocket so he went and he bought a cup and it became the brendan martin cup and it's progressed ever since and it's interesting because the gaa seemed to have some regulation that a cup can only be named after somebody who's dead obviously the lgfa had none of those rules and a really interesting tidbits too if the cup was updated in 99 uh, and the new trophy was first presented to another legend 99 diane o'hara when she lifted it for mayo and really interestingly this year obviously we know the winning teams cannot take the cups out of Crook park so what did the Meads team do if they couldn't have the brendan martin cup they got Brendan Martin himself he came to their celebrations and he joined them <laughs> that night and um, and he's 83 years young and he's he's such a great role in women's sport in Ireland and sport in general and we don't know enough about the man it's a great great profile and just the fact that he showed up with the do I mean that's brilliant <laughs> yeah
1: I, like my memory of meeting him first was really really vibrant uh, colourful character as well he came along off getting ready to play Wexford in the All Ireland Junior and he said I can't give you my cup because you'd have to get to senior in order to win this but it's." Something to aspire to. I'd like you to try and get this back someday. And he stayed around and he was uh, singing the songs along with the team along the way. And uh, you could tell the real passion that he had for ladies football. And uh, again, it's just remarkable because as you say, Moratrasa in the GA itself everything has to be very carefully monitored when it comes to who a cup is named after. I think it goes through a whole process and you know, legends are then considered along the way, but they have to have passed away uh, before the cup gets passed along. Brendan, if I can bring you around to an article that you've picked out that you really enjoyed as well around Colin Kaepernick, because this probably dovetails with a piece that's in the Times today around the Windrush generation and Andy Ro- Andy Cole as well. Uh, but if we could talk first about the Kaepernick story, uh, which is Mark Gallagher's. This goes back now five years to the pre-season before the NFL back in 2016 when Kaepernick was first taking the knee against um, social injustice which he perceived in American society
0: Yeah, obviously the American football season has started two weekends ago so we're into week three now at the moment and Mark, um, as Mark does he likes to go off the beaten track and find, like Gordon did with the Brendan Martin idea he likes to go off and find a, a different story that really wouldn't kind of cross our pages otherwise he's brilliant at it so he's spoken to the American sports writer David Zirin, who has a book out called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, um, and it's just a lovely interview with a guy who is who has made a career, basically, <clears throat> about talking how you can't separate sports and politics. And it's amazing how I think back to my first 10 or 12 years in sports writing and that kind of horrible old cliche, you'd always see it kind of, I've probably used it myself a few times, we can't mix sport and politics or you shouldn't mix sport and politics. And Dave Zirin has always gone against, he says, politics is baked into the cake of sport, always has been. But when I started out doing this work, it was a very thin rule in terms of what to write about. And now it's crossed the political and sporting landscape. And Colin Kaepernick, as we know, has been central to that. It's five years now since he started taking the knee On the advice of his chat with a former um green beret and nfl player if you remember back to the time when he first did was he started sitting during the national anthem and he took on board look this might not be the most respectful way to to hold your protest so he spoke to a former he spoke to a veteran and a former player and they decided that kneeling would be a perfectly acceptable way of showing their their um, their on um, you know what uh, their feelings about uh, racial injustice in the United States and as Mark says how wrong they were I mean I, I think the reaction to that at the time shows that no matter what sort of protest they came out about it would have triggered um, white America and we've we've touched on this already in in the, the boorishness or otherwise of of Ryder Cup fans and it's just a very very good piece as 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 to how what Kaepernick has done and how it's kind of caused other sports people to stand up and take notice and again this feeds into maybe things like Maura trassel is talking about sean o'brien being one of the few if not the only male player on on twitter saying things need to improve for the irish women's team so it, it's not just you know politics politics sports politics it's about athletes who are having more of a voice and he talks about a couple of those athletes obviously marcus rashford and and people like that who have I suppose taken up the, the baton and uh, I think the most interesting part of it to me was um, Dave Zirin was talking about the reaction to the Kaepernick effect throughout America and we've touched on you know quote-unquote Hicksville and the coasts the liberal coast but Seattle has a reputation as one of the most liberal parts of the United States and he talks about James Garfield High in Seattle where Jimi Hendrix and Quincy Jones went to school and the head coach there is a man called Joey Thomas, a former NFL player who grew up in the area. Um, and he was very open to the idea of players taking an E and having a you know proper discussion about that. And it led to him losing his job, but that's in Seattle. So we can only imagine the conversations and the difficulties that people are having by taking a stand in the deep south and other whatever less enlightened parts of, of the United States. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, how human nature it's easier to sit back and sink in with the crowd, and how difficult it is to stand up and do the right thing. And it's just a very good um, deep dive into Kaepernick and where he's come from by Mark, and just a really good piece. Yeah, and
1: more. Trust me, something that stands out, and it's in the second half of the piece, which is written by Mark Gallagher in the uh, Daily Mail on Sunday uh, today, is that it points out that there's a lot of. Top American athletes who are willing to put their head above the parapet and actually speak out, pointing out the likes of LeBron James, Jones or James, I should say, even who has been very outspoken around social issues in the United States. You're know, speaking about Megan Rapinoe, who has continually spoken about uh, the plight of female athletes in the United States. Talking about Naomi Osaka, who, you know, aside from her talking about her own mental health very openly, has also talked about issues around race within sport and within the USA. A lot of these top US athletes compared to their European equivalents are more than happy to be outspoken on issues outside of sport
2: yeah I mean I think our European equivalents are catching up bit by bit and there's actually an interesting article as well by Oli Holt about how Premier League players are being you know while they're very strong on lots of social issues they seem to be very very quiet on vaccination he was saying you know wouldn't it be great if maybe every premier league captain came out and said we got vaccinated so could should you for the social good and i think it's an interesting thing because you know we've seen what marcus rashford has achieved in other spheres it's probably a bit easier when you're a Megan Rapineau or when you're uh, when you're LeBron James to speak out you know you have a social network around you you have a social circle you have a lot of cash you have sponsors who, and they probably knew the sponsors were not going to back away because they were on the right side of history and um, funnily enough and that was because of Kaepernick and when you look at it too like there's a line I think in James Gallagher's piece which is very telling he said you know he'd be remembered forever this could have been a one week story if the NFL had said we respect the right of all players to express themselves the story would have been done but they didn't they chose to kick back and be on the wrong side and this is what happens if if people are in the in the right and I use the word right in a moral and a social kind of sense it is very difficult then once they've gone that far and struck their neck out to expect them to just wind their neck back in that's not what happens and history hasn't shown that and the people who are pushing against the Colin Kaepernick's of the world they tend to be well off and maybe not so sometimes too to be fair white people who feel they will lose something if they give somebody else a leg up, be in a women's sport be it black football players be people worried about black lives not mattering as much as white lives all those kind of things And I suppose what we should be doing is looking at it from another point of view as well and adding on to this is what are these people afraid of losing and what can we do to reassure these people to help bring people along? We might be, I'm not saying we're better at it in Ireland, maybe we haven't had as many of those divisions, but I mean if you were to ask an Irish traveller they would disagree with me very strongly. Whereas in America people have lived these divisions and they've seen what happens and I think he was just that catalyst and light light bulb moment at that time and his story hasn't ended yet that's the really interesting thing i think this is going to go on run on for more but there's still people out there who in america who are afraid for standing up for their rights or standing up for what they believe in for fear of death and not by a firing squad or anything but by some randomer walking by and shooting them
1: I wonder as well, Brendan, when it comes to some of the athletes where they find it difficult to speak out and things that they may well have a private opinion about is that you've got two things happening you've got Michael Jordan who says Republicans buy sneakers too, and then you've also got what happened to Marcus Rashford this summer, which is that Marcus Rashford speaks out about wealth inequality across the UK and a generation of young people who are in a very difficult position and forces the Conservative government to have a U-turn around uh, lunchtime dinners in schools and then he misses a penalty in the European Championship final and there are plenty of people waiting to say stick to sport leave the politics to one side
0: yeah exactly I mean that's what we touched on earlier it takes a brave man or a brave woman to kind of stick their head above that parapet it's not for everybody that's just the reality of life I mean you know we see this in in lots of areas you know there's the discussion around why is there not more openly gay players in, in football for instance or or any sports and like it's not for everybody i mean a lot of people aren't mentally able to cope with that they're they're scared understandably whether it's for the abuse they take online or in the street or losing sponsors um you know disagreements in the families your opinion might not be the same as your partners it's a really complex issue so it's not for everybody to stand up there and say this is right it's 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 a it's a situation i can't go on i have to speak out about that's why it's so admirable for somebody like a colin kaepernick or a marcus rashford to do that i mean what marcus rashford has done is simply unbelievable i mean you know you look you look at what's happening in the uk and uh, how that country has just You know it's it's disintegrated morally uh, from the top down in a lot of ways and that's not everybody obviously but public discourse the government um there's a piece and the windrush generation with andy cole in the times as well by jonathan northcroft it's well worth a look um you know there's horrible things happening for somebody to stand up and say no this isn't acceptable it's it's a huge step it's a huge step to put yourself out there your life changes forever do you know what I mean? And, mm. and I think now that we're five years down the line from a Kaepernick, um, there's a mention of John Carlos at the 68 games, one of the, the black American act, um, athletes who gave the, the gloved fist salute in Mexico at the games. His life changed forever. The Australian athletes who stood there in solidarity with him, his life changed forever, not for the better in a lot of ways. And Maura Trassa is right. Colin Kaepernick is remembered now because the NFL did the wrong thing. Um, yeah, his legacy is secured. He'll go down in history for the right reasons. But look at what it's done to his life. So it's a huge sliding doors moment for anybody to do this. And you just have to admire them. And just on the, the Windrush thing on on the Sunday Times, i recommend that one as well. It's a really good piece written by Jonathan Northcroft. Touches on the Windrush generation was... Um, the generation of people who came over to the uk from the caribbean after world war ii when they were invited in by the british government because they needed labor and how they were treated and we have the situation now in the uk where over 80 of them were actually deported wrongly by a government that was trying to make a hostile environment for immigrants and these people weren't even immigrants they were there by right so it, there, there's all this kind of intermeshing of sport and politics and it's it's a very healthy thing that we're seeing it and even from a personal uh, you know a selfish point of view when you're picking up the newspapers it's great to see this in the sports sections
1: yeah that's a selection of some of the really good sports writing that are across the Sunday papers more Travis Brendan thanks a million for joining us this afternoon
2: Cheers
1: guys. We're heading towards a break. When we come back, we'll be talking Ryder Cup Europe need a real miracle at Whistling Straits if they're to retain the Ryder Cup. They would have to win nine of the twelve matches. We'll see if that's possible and talk about the atmosphere around Wisconsin over the last three days when we're joined by Vincent Hogan just after the news headlines at three o'clock. The Sunday papers are off the ball.